Hello and welcome to our podcast, Baby Baking and Kid Raising, hosted by myself, Eliza Carr, a passionate midwife, new mama and founder of Bump and Bub, as well as my co-host, Dr. Joseph Scorey, an obstetrician, gynecologist and fertility specialist, as well as a dad of three. Together, we will be discussing topics from fertility through to parenthood and everything in between. Each week, we will be joined by inspiring guests who share their own journeys through fertility, pregnancy, birth and parenthood, as well as educational episodes from us, a midwife and an obstetrician. This episode is sponsored by Oi Oi. Today we are sitting down with the incredibly inspiring Jana Pittman. Jana is a mum of six children, including a set of beautiful twins born last year, a junior doctor with the dream of being an obstetrician and gynecologist, a published author and an athlete, winning gold for Australia in the Olympics. I think it's fair to say that Jana's ambition and success across many facets has blown away most of Australia, including us. So welcome Jana and we are so stoked to have you here. Thanks guys, I really appreciate uh, you having me on board. Can we commence this podcast when we have so much to chat about, but can we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, your family, and where you are based? Absolutely. I live in Sydney, up, um, up very close to my own parents, actually. I'm a clever woman. I moved as close as humanly possible to my family uh, so that they could support me with my six children and my burgeoning medical career. So, um, yeah, I'm born and bred up in Sydney, lived all over the world, including down in Melbourne, uh, where most of my athletics career was where I was involved in most of my sporting career and now live back up here. And I'm, I'm currently working as a junior doctor at the Royal Hospital for Women in Sydney. Um, yep, I have six kids, just like you aptly said. And, uh, yeah, I was a sports person for Australia for many years. Are you missing the coffee? The Melbourne coffee. I Yes, Joe. of course. Actually, the Mount Martha coffee is my favourite, to be honest. A little coffee shop down there I used to study at very much. I miss, And I, do you know what? I even miss the weather. I was down there for an ultrasound course this week and the fact that you can get up in the morning and it's pouring rain and then it's shining three hours later. So it's like... <laughs> Crowded house were right, weren't they? Four seasons in one day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so t- take us back a little bit. I mean, I grew up as a kid. Um, my dad was a pharmacist and there was always an you know, intention in my mind that I always wanted to be a doctor. I certainly didn't know what type of doctor at that point of time, but during the course of your life, you've had so many different things and we'll touch on those as, as things go by. But what sort of has, you know, in terms of your thinking about becoming a, a doctor, when did you start thinking about that? To be honest, I was knee high to a grasshopper. Like I was six, about five or six years of age. Um, and I don't know why, but I used to carry this little medical bag around. Like, a, you know, those old school doctor bags you used to see in like Doctor Who, the brown things that clipped open and you think of your old school doctors carrying that around. Anyway, I, I loved that as a kid and used to perform operations on my poor brother and, you know, feed him snails and all sorts of things, trying to make him better um thankfully nobody got hurt in the process but uh, it's something I've always wanted to do so you know I feel very grateful that sport came along and I got to experience that the highs and lows of competing for my country but truthfully medicine is what I've always wanted to do so it was a bit of a distraction the athletics and the bobsledding (laughs) and now I'm like 40 and half of my bosses are you know 10 years younger than me it's not much fun But, you know, it's worth it. But, yeah, like, you know, ultimately I do feel like, you know, I I wouldn't be doing podcasts and things like this if I hadn't have done the sport I had because it gives me a voice, particularly in women's health, to talk about things that I think are really important. So I think it's a good marriage between both that I want to be a women's health advocate and obviously an obstetrician uh, down the track. But, you know, having had a previous sporting career and having that profile, I hope will lend lend my voice to some things that I really want to get out and talk about. 
And it's true that a lot of people, I remember when I was in year 12, my dad, I was doing rowing and I was doing footy and I sort of wanted to give up rowing because it was it was detracting for me from you know my studies and trying to get the the, level, the marks that I needed to get into into medicine at that point. But you know, Dad's saying was you know if you have a job to give, you always give it to the busiest person because they're yes. more likely to complete that job. <laughs> so, so you know, at school then we you're highly competitive in everything in in schoolwork and in athletics and is that sort of you know and obviously then move on to doing athletics. I mean. How were those formidable years in, in the early parts of your life? Actually, I'm going to throw a, throw a curveball. I'm not competitive at all. And I know everyone goes, oh, 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 oh very funny. That's impossible for someone like you. Um, I'm very driven and incredibly passionate towards things I love, but actively steer away from things like Monopoly and tennis and any other game where I have to have a competitive edge with uh, my, you know, my kids or my family because I feel like I work so hard in the space where I want to be successful that I don't want the rest of my life to be full of that competitiveness. So, um, and I think that's the reason I have the ability to push so hard at the things that I'm committed to because I don't have my whole life <laughs> being so competitive. So you're right, though, back back in the schooling days, um, you know, I did my HSC at an embassy in Chile at the World Junior Championships So because we had to sit the exams at the same time as all the kids back in Australia. So 2 o'clock in the morning I was sitting there doing my biology exam at the Australian oh Embassy. My gosh. <laughs> um, the same as you, hoping wow. desperately to get into medical school, um, falling short of that, and it's something I'm very happy and open to, to own because because, you know, so many of us that become good doctors did not get in on the first go. Um, and, you know, it doesn't always make a good doctor just because we, we're the brightest of brightest of the of the bunch. So it's about hard work. It's about knowing what you want and, and then continuously just attacking that until it happens. And for me, that's how that's how it kind of played out. And, and that's, again, even when I sat the entrance exam 15 years later, I failed that the first time as well. So it was uh, it was definitely a hard road to, to finally get into medical school, which was why I was then so incredibly surprised to get the marks that I did um, while I was there. So I do feel very, very blessed that uh, it was the career that I fell into, um, having wanted it for so long after sport. We talk about sport then. I mean, you know, there was a stellar career, but, you know, there's, it, there are highlights that you sort of look back on now and go, you know, I can't believe I did that. I mean, sometimes <laughs> when I look at my, I look back, you know, this, this pales into it's really completely insignificant compared to your life, I'm sure, but sometimes I look back at notes that I wrote at the hospital that I once worked at, and I go, my God, I was so insightful back there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you see these notes, my God, what is he doing? He's really good, and it's yeah. your notes. But when you look back at when you look back at your career, your athletics career, do you look back and you know maybe see something on the TV or, and you just go, wow, that that was unbelievable. Are there any highlights like that? Yeah, and I think that's one that probably fits this podcast really well is winning the world championships seven and a half months after having a baby. Like that, I look at back that now, and I like, I don't even know how I had, how I did it. Like how to get back to full training, managing that newborn that newborn period, managing your body, managing the incontinence that was associated with the pelvic floor weakness, not acknowledging that back at the time. In all truth, whereas you know, I'm very open about that now in uh, in my new space, but. It's, it's quite phenomenal. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't even think that was me now that I look back on it and I think, you know, I think it would have just been amazing to even return to sport, let alone um, do that as a mother. And it was at a time, guys, when, when women didn't do that. You know, this is before Serena Williams became a superstar tennis player after having a kid and Paula Radcliffe went out and was winning the London and New York Marathon six or seven months after having a baby. But look, Paula and I were during an era where it was unheard of and, in fact, most doctors 
would actually shy away from even giving us advice because it was such a taboo topic to train that hard during pregnancy and to return that quickly to sport. So whereas in, you know, in this day and age, we encourage our women to get out there and reduce the chance of diabetes and all this sort of stuff in pregnancy because we know fitness is really important. But back then, oh, there was a lot of head shakers, a lot of naysayers saying, oh, goodness, what's mm. she doing? It's She's pushing boundaries that shouldn't be pushed. Actually, if you Google my name and your name, you'll see an article that uh, they actually asked me about that. Really? That, I think there was a... There, yeah, there was you hurdling or something, and and I think it was, it was also the it was also at the time that Serena Williams had just won the Aussie Open, and yeah. you know, can women who are pregnant, you know, be high performance athletes? And it was just, it seemed nonsensical to me that they would yeah. even ask that question. But it was interesting that I I think it was a Mamma Mia article, but I can't remember okay. now. But it was it was quite interesting that you know, you're right, and that's only what yeah. probably five six years seven years yeah. ago. That's and right. uh, and yet I think a lot's changed though even in, even in that short amount of the time partly because maybe of you and also Serena and a whole range of high performance athletes that really just say you know what we can do it and why shouldn't Absolutely. we be able to do it Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are limits, and that's why when I did the SAS Australia television show uh, a couple of years ago, again five and a half months after having my fourth child at that stage, um, and I did wet myself on national television, and I, I openly talk about that conversation because there are limits that your body can go through, uh, and I, in hindsight, would have probably trained less in that first pregnancy. Uh, so for me, that was almost that was two thousand and seven. So he's actually sixteen now. That was my first pregnancy, um, and I did push the envelope a little bit too hard. So hurdling at eight months pregnant there's nothing wrong with it I don't think there was a safety issue in that setting but the the it basically meant my pelvic floor was so incredibly tight and strong that I found birthing quite hard so actually getting the you know getting you know <laughs> getting the actual the perineal area to relax and allow myself to 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 not have an obstructed labor was was real like it was a tough tough situation I had an OP labor there for a long time and I don't think I allowed my body to open up well enough in that space whereas I learned obviously in subsequent pregnancies to not do that such hardcore high intense elite level style training uh, for as long a time I did still did it don't get me wrong I still did quite a bit of it during pregnancy but not quite to the extent of my first one. Yeah, and I, look, I find, and I've said this before on many of our podcasts, you know, the, the pelvic floor is a bit like an, the netting underneath a basketball hoop and the pelvis is like the basketball hoop. And if you're not relaxing the netting, if you're trying to do a slam dunk and someone puts the basketball into the, into the in through the hoop but you're holding the netting very tautly or tightly, it's not going to allow the head to drop or That's the right. basketball to drop through the basketball hoop. And I find that there's a lot of high-performance athletes I've had Olympians as as um, as uh, patients and also ballerinas, people who ride yes. horses, and also people who do Pilates have a very high and and, and active yes, pelvic time. floor. And mm. during the um, during the pregnancy, so it's more important that you you do see a pelvic floor physio to try to help relax the pelvic floor. So it, you know during the birthing process, it, it allows for facilitation of the baby's head to rotate or turn around from right. looking up towards the pubis. And then rather than looking down. So yeah, so there's there are things of course you need to be mindful of, even if you're you're a high performance athlete, no doubt. And you have great insights. Yeah, I do. I mean, I had a levator and I rupture in that pregnancy. So, I mean, I didn't know that till 12 months afterwards. And it's so interesting because I, I won the World Championships in 2007, literally just after having a baby. But then the following year at the Olympic Games, I lost the Olympics with injury. And in hindsight now with more medical knowledge, I realised that it's likely from the posterior chain weakness and from the pelvic floor and the levator rupture that I had a complete pelvic instability that therefore carried down. And even though it was an Achilles injury that I lost the Olympics for, I actually think it was a complete instability through the body resulting from that birth trauma that I'd been through and it's so interesting that it could have been prevented had I known more 
um, now. So it's a it's a it's a interesting message to learn many many years later that whilst it looks like you're being a superhero running up till the day you drop and coming back within two days of having a baby going to the track and running that that has probably did did in my olympics in absolutely incredible no i'm I'm very keen on doing exercise right up until your birth even with the twins i exercised right up until um i went into labor but it was just a very different intensity it was a much safer yeah. It was just enjoyable because I think one of the things I didn't have with my first pregnancy was that enjoyment of exercise because I was pushing myself to try and make sure I didn't lose my fitness. And then all of a sudden I was back winning the world championships so quickly I realised the body's remarkable. It can actually get back to that fitness so much quicker than you think it can. Um, so we need to actually take a step back and realise how pretty incredible the female body is and not beat it up. Absolutely. Much. And your twins only one, is that right? Yeah, they turned, well, theoretically they're one tomorrow. So they're, they're due on the 26th of April but because they were premature. They've already been on in the world 13 months. <laughs> wow. And how they were around 34 weeks, were they, when they were born? 34 and 6 on the nail. One hour more and they would have been 36, 35 weekers. And you're, and you're sitting in, the, in the, the special care nursery afterwards and they keep going to 34 weekers and I'm like, they're not 34, they're almost 35. <laughs> We're 60 minutes away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Today's episode is sponsored by The Incredible Oyoi, a company that has been a part of my parenting journey from the get-go. Oyoi is a beautiful family-owned Australian business that is best known for their practical, stylish, and amazing quality nappy bags. Lisa, the founder of Oyoi, launched the company 25 years ago when her daughter was born, and she realized there was a massive gap in the market for good quality baby bags that parents actually felt proud to use and wear. Oyoi is now run by Lisa and her daughter Isabella, who is now grown up which is a really true testament to the brand's longevity, but also just the most amazing story of a mother and daughter duo running an incredible business. For us, Oyoi is the only nappy bag brand that we have ever used. Parenting is wild, and somehow these little humans need an ungodly amount of items just to leave the house. The Oyoi nappy bag has a space for literally everything. We chose a beautiful tan backpack that Stuart, my fiancé, proudly walks around with. Ours has been shoved in the back of the pram, the car, on 101 hikes, and somehow it still looks brand new. Oyoi also has a huge range of different styles and nappy bags, as well as other beautiful items like pram liners, change mat clutches, stroller organizers, and more. They have kindly given us a 15% code off just for you guys. Use code BBKR at checkout and see the show notes below for more details. So can we pivot a little bit and start talking about your parenting journey? So you have six beautiful children and there's a, an age range of about 16 years or 15 years, is that right? That's right. Can you talk us through those pregnancies and births or summarize them sure. um, and give us a little bit of insight there? Summarize. <laughs> it's quick. I'll try. Um, 16-year-old was right in the middle of my career. He was my first. He was wonderful. Um, then I had four miscarriages after him, unfortunately. Then I got I had my two beautiful daughters via sperm donation, so very different. I unfortunately had divorced from my husband. But I'd always been, just like my medical career, I'd always wanted to have five kids. Don't know why. Um, just love the idea of having a, a big, busy household. So I was labelled the socially infertile. <laughs> Love that term. You, you can go with that, Joe. I'm not sure why we label that when ladies can't find husbands. But anyway, I, um, I went down the IVF sperm donor route and uh, had my beautiful girls, which are the blessing of my life. So I'm very great, grateful for going with them. Um, then I had my beautiful son, Charlie, when I met 
my current husband. Um, his name's Paul. And then I have my little boy, Charlie. And then we decided to have one more because that's what you do when you have four kids. And uh, I ended up with beautiful twins, uh, Willow and Quinlan, who are my last born a year ago. Uh, very, very, very grateful. It's always the way, isn't it? You want to just go for one more and then you get twins. <laughs> Exactly. And I remember there was, a, there was a patient of mine who was doing ovulation induction. So I was, we were giving her medication in order to stimulate the ovaries to you know, create an, a follicle that would eventually ovulate into an egg. And as sometimes happens with ovulation induction, there are actually two little follicles. And um, I said to her at the time, look, there's a 5 to 10% chance of twins. And she said, oh, Joe, we've been spending so much time doing this ovulation induction. We'll just give it a go. Anyway, so she came back for a six-week and two-day ultrasound scan. And I said to her, look, there's one and there's two. And she went, oh, beep. <laughs> we can't say that word on this podcast. <laughs> she said, and somewhat jokingly, she said, how the hell am I going to afford school fees? So, <laughs> so yeah. You, you know, they said, oh, I'm so sorry. That's not what I meant. That's what I meant. But, you know, it is. It's a shock, yeah, when you when you think, oh, my God, we only want one more and we ended up with two. That's right, especially when you already had four. So, um, yeah, no, look, and yeah. you wouldn't be surprised, I'm sure, to say that I uh, I took the blood test myself at work and I could see the numbers going up and up and up and I'm like, hmm, that's a little bit of an inappropriate rise in beta-HCG, the pregnancy hormone, obviously, and then I ultrasounded myself and found the two heartbeats, which was fun. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah. oh, my gosh. Was it just you in the room when you were doing that? With a friend of mine who's a sonographer. So we kind of looked at it together and then I had a formal oh ultrasound gosh. a week later to confirm that there was definitely um, definitely two there. But, you know, everything's a blessing. Oh and, um, you know, I, I do I do think that if I – I think I don't think I'll do IVF as a, as a treatment, as a, as a profession down the track, but I don't think I'd ever transfer to embryos because I think it's actually a – it's a really it's a really tough life. Like to a pregnancy, a twin pregnancy – after having four such easy pregnancies, in all truth, I see women really struggling. I had terrible vulval varicosities and, and uh, you know, a little bit of nausea and, and stuff like that. But then to move on to a twin pregnancy where you felt like you had hyperemesis the whole time and you just, like, vomited during one of my first ever cesarean sections, Joe. Like, I was literally handed the knife and given the privilege of doing this cesarean section and then I'm vomiting in my mask. And it's just like, no. <laughs> It is true. Like I get a lot of I get a lot of patients who say to me, "Oh, can you put in two embryos?" Young people, and I say to them, "You know, first things first. I don't want to make a rod for my own back because you know we do know that twin pregnancies have an increased chance of gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, early early birth." But notwithstanding the fact that, yeah, for the for the woman herself, I mean, it is hard hard work, and they go, "Oh, look, we'll just get both of them done in one hit. It'll be awesome." it's not necessarily the case so i always caution them on, on in fact we we don't well fortunately in australia our overall uh, success rates in terms of pregnancy are very good and we've got access to medicare in terms of um, some subsidy towards ivf which means that we don't necessarily need to put in two embryos in some places around the world where ivf is not funded by government uh, there's a pressure on those people in order to become pregnant so you know every time you go back and do another ovulation induction or every time you go back and, and do another thaw cycle for an embryo that's another additional cost which you can understand for some people is a prohibitive and that's Absolutely. why they put in those two embryos but we're very lucky so did you have those twins vaginally I did. Um, I had all six of my babies vaginally, so um, something I'm very proud of. Uh, so I can't, I can never empathise or understand a cesarean section if I do one one day. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I was 
very lucky to find an amazing obstetrician up in Sydney called Baz Gurgis, who was happy to deliver them no matter what position they were in. So I was very lucky that I did have a cephalic and a breech baby and he didn't have a problem with that. So I had a yeah. breech extraction for the second twin. Uh, which was a little hairy, I have to say, and I'm not sure where his arm was because I could see it like up to here <laughs> inside me, but I'm like, okay. I mean, I love twin births. They're, they're fantastic. But, yeah, you're right, a breech extraction is uh, – I, I just – yeah, sometimes I, I think what, what would, what, how does a woman think when she's seeing what's going on down here? You know, it's, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? Um, I'd watched Andrew do it, though, many years ago, which was extraordinary. So I actually went into theatres. I don't know if you know him. He was one of the obviously involved in the AMA as well, which is why I thought maybe perhaps you knew him. But I watched him do an amazing breech extraction as one of, one of the first ever vaginal birth twins I'd ever seen as a, as a medical student. And watching him, it was it was phenomenal. And so seeing how beautifully those babies had birthed was was the memory I took when I found out I was pregnant and wanted to birth, birth vaginally. I just stepped back into that situation and thought the, the woman's body is amazing. It can do it. You've just got to give it a give it a give it a chance, especially with a proven pelvis. Like you know, I've already had four vaginal births. Absolutely, we all come to a decision in terms of doing medicine, and you obviously had that decision very early on in your in your career in terms of you know being a toddler and almost wanting to be a doctor. But then you know it's very different about you know what what there's so many different types of doctors, isn't it? And so from my perspective, you know, I always was attracted to obstetrics and gynaecology. I remember doing my term in ONG as a, as a medical student and. There was, you know, as a male, really, a lot of women weren't happy with a male being in the birth space, you know, a male medical student at that. But I had one woman I remember at St George's Hospital here in Victoria where I was actually born. So it was quite, you know, it was, there was nice synergy. I was born there and this woman <laughs> was more than happy for me to be in her birth space. And it was such a beautiful experience and she allowed me to catch the baby. I remember she was standing up in the air and I was sort of in slips position. I was thinking, I'm going to drop this baby, I'm going to drop this baby. <laughs> but fortunately, I didn't. And afterwards, you know, she was just so full of, no, I shouldn't say praise for me. She was obviously praise for herself, but just so happy that I had been involved and could mm. see, you know, the genuine joy in my eyes. That, it, that actually then, you know, allowed me to think about doing ONG later on in life, even though I sort of, Veered off a little bit and did cardiology initially, and then my wife had our firstborn, and that sort of then jolted me to think I, I need to do obstetrics and gynaecology. But what sort of made you think that ONG was your career path? Because you know we can be so many different types of doctors, but what specifically was was the catalyst for you moving into that area? Oh, look, for me, it's actually it's been there right from the beginning of starting medicine. So I think definitely having my first birth with my son when I was only 22, 23 years of age, my midwife was amazing. And I thought she was just a blessing from heaven. Um, so I actually started in midwifery. So I did a, a year and a half in midwifery first, thinking that was the path I was going to go on. Um, and then obviously when I when I got to a point where I'm sure you can agree with me here, Eliza, that I didn't quite like that the doctors stepped in every time the interesting stuff happened in in the birth unit and so I was like yeah no <laughs> and that that idea of medicine sort of crept back in and I loved loved high risk obstetrics so I thought this is something I'd love to look into um and then I had obviously a cervical cancer scare myself um quite about 10 years ago now I had sin 3 um and what they call smile back then which is a obviously a combination between adeno and squamous so it was a bit of a rare abnormality of the cervix and so I became an ambassador for the Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation and the love for gynecology stepped in which obviously you can't do as much of as a midwife so that really pushed me to think no it's medicine that I want to pursue and I applied that year for medical school so um throughout medical school I kept 
thinking, gosh, you're an idiot for not finishing midwifery because now you could be kind of practicing some midi on the side of your medicine because, as you know, Joe, you don't do a lot of obstetrics and gynae during medical school. And I felt very um, detracted and fell in love with surgery and then fell in love with neuro and then fell in love with renal as you do as you move through um, your career because everything's so diverse and attractive at medical school. Um, but it's very similar to you. I've, I vividly remember I was actually still competing for the Olympics and I was training for the Rio Games at that point um, and I got offered to come and scrub for my first ever cesarean section and I didn't even tell my coach. I feel so bad in hindsight but I just, just missed my training session and scrubbed for that surgery and got to help you know, birth that baby. And I was in love from that point onwards. There was like, there was no, there was no other alternative from then. And, you know, once then I, I was actually on a couple of weeks later, started my ONG rotation formally and made, fell in love with all the midwives at Blacktown Hospital. So if any of them watch this, they will hear this, they know how much I love that hospital because they fostered everything that it could be about being a good junior ONG doctor because they let me sit there and do the hands-on experience. So they birthed with me 10 times, you know, learning to really rotate, allowing that baby to just restitute and, and birth all on its own and the hands off and the peri rest, like perfectly taught by my midwives. Again, starting to regret why I didn't do midwifery because the whole being with woman rather than just rocking up in the last five minutes. <laughs> like, um, but I can't think of anything else I'd like to do more. So I guess having that experience and then finishing finishing medical school and then being very lucky to get multiple rotations through internship and residency, it's the best job in the world. Mm, it is. Wow. It's got a it's it's got a wonderful. Um, I mean, I always say, you know, we, we're very fortunate. We we do a combination of you know medicine and surgery, and you know, I can go from one day doing advanced laparoscopic surgery with bowel resection for endometriosis. I can do an egg collection. I can then do an embryo transfer, do a few early pregnancy scans, IVF scans, catch a baby, come back and do it all over again in one day. <laughs> and I think to myself, if I'd done cardiology, it would have been stop smoking, control your weight, yeah. you know, here's some statins for your, for your reduction in your lipids. It would have been quite boring, I would have thought. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful in terms of the breadth of what we get to do. And, you know, you can subspecialise and you can do different elements of, uh, you know, purely obstetrics or purely gynaecology, but the scope to be able to do it all is actually quite enjoyable. What what have you – I mean, you've, you've already touched on the fact that obstetrics is sort of where you're, you're at, but we, we know that you've also been involved in uh, the first uterine transplant here in Australia. So, you know, what part of the whole breadth of that wonderful specialty that you hopefully you'll be part of soon um, in, a, in a more formal sense, you know, what part of it do you really sit back and go, wow, that's, I can see myself doing that for the future? You know, it's funny because I always have this conversation with with my friends at work, and they're like, "Just get on the program first, Yana. That's uh, you know, stop thinking about the roses at the end when you need to <laughs> get through the thorny part first. But um, obviously, I've done IVF myself. I've uh, I've had been I've been in love with fertility. So in terms of where the uterine transplant space came from, being through going through multiple miscarriages myself um, after already having having had a child, so having sort of secondary infertility was was heartbreaking. And not being able to have a child and not understanding why my body wasn't cooperating with the way I really wanted it to um, and the heartbreak after month and month of, you know, not falling pregnant and then getting pregnant and the, the elation of that and then the ultrasound where there's a beautiful heartbeat and then you start to bleed. And I know I'm not alone. I know there'll be people that will be listening to this that have been through that. So I started just really focusing on the idea of doing fertility and trying to find out what that what what the cause was behind this. And there was nothing for me, unfortunately. Um 
but it led me to also the combination around that time of having the cervical cancer scare and what would have happened if I actually had a hysterectomy which would then obviously lead to not being able to carry my own baby. And so I started doing some early research in women under the age of 45 who were having hysterectomies for things like um, cervical cancer and how that made them feel not being able to have a child. And during that whole space, the uterine transplant was kicking off in Europe and the incredible Mats Brandstrom, who I'm sure you've spoken about already, was doing the first transplant over in the world um, and having a successful pregnancy and live birth following that transplant. And it just all seemed to be a wonderful marriage. Like I was looking at it thinking I've got this, this knowledge and this information around cervical cancer and I hear what these women are saying how much they would love to be able to carry a child and how that 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 survivorship period is amazing they've survived cancer but now they can't have a family and the fact that someone in the world was doing this and so it was so interesting because I started speaking to Matt's actually online it was so great because I had the courage to send him a little email and say hey Dr Branstrom or Professor Branstrom are you doing this surgery could I come over and do my medical school elective with you please thinking I'd never hear back from him because he's like a superstar in the world. And uh, thankfully for me, he was an avid track and field fan. <laughs> so he's like, sure, <laughs> you come on over um, and teach my teach my team a little bit about sport and about motivation and you can come and watch what we're doing. So um, it was it was a really phenomenal experience. Um, and then I came back and I did a few rounds of IVF myself and donated a few embryos to a couple of families who had really struggled through that IVF space, which furthered my love for fertility. Um, and those there's been a couple of babies born. So I have more than six kids. Theoretically, not my children, obviously, but genetically or biologically, there's a few extra um, Pittman genetics out there. But uh, it was it, it felt so powerful to be able to see those women's faces when when they got pregnant through that experience. That I thought, you know, why not try and get it off the ground here in Australia? And thankfully, I met the amazing and incredible Dr. Rebecca Deans, who is the founder of our program at the Royal Hospital for Women, um, and who obviously did the first surgery on um, on Kirsty Byron, who you've already done on this podcast in the past. So mind-boggling is all I can say to have watched that process happen over the last five and six years, um, and to have been on the periphery and involved in it. Life changing. Fertility is is one of those things, and I think you touched on a lot of it. And, and, and you know, miscarriage is one of those parts of our job that's the hardest. That, and of course, any pregnancy loss that happens, you know, later on in pregnancy, they're the most devastating thing. And we've all had times in our career where patients or things haven't gone quite well. Is there anything that stands out in in your, your yet short career in terms of being a medical student and a junior doctor that you think you know? You see the sadness and, and how, how did you respond to that? Uh, and I think that's why I love, um, I think I probably haven't articulated very well, I love everything in O&G. Like I would be very happy with any job that they will give me <laughs> or allow me to be involved in. But um, I love maternal fetal medicine, which is high-risk obstetrics, mainly because I feel like for some reason, maybe because I went through the miscarriages myself, also, my own mother spoke very openly, even as a child, when I, when I was a child, that she went through a late stage miscarriage. So I'm guessing she doesn't 100% remember, but it was in the second trimester for sure. Um, and that how much that affected her, that I, I feel like I'm really good in that space, guys. And so I sit, I love my EPAS clinics, which is your early pregnancy assessment clinics, which is often miscarriage and early miscarriages. But I've also had in fact, we're friends now through Instagram, which happens, I guess, when you've um, got my previous life. But this incredible patient, she was so brave um, and she lost her beautiful baby at 18 weeks and she allowed me to be with her through that birthing process when she birthed her beautiful son into the world and I sat there with her and we held him together and we talked about his, you know, his impact on her life. Um, and then I got the most beautiful message 
about 12 months ago now saying that she was pregnant again and how um, nervous she was and to and I walked the next nine months with her um, albeit online like not in person and and then she shared with me you know the very first photo of of her beautiful daughter born a few weeks ago so that privilege of being part of someone's life through the worst day of their life through or through to the most extraordinary is why I I love the high-risk obstetrics because I just feel like that is some a place that I, I sit comfortably despite the pain and anguish of that patient and I feel like I can be, a, you might find this a little hard to believe, but a quiet presence <laughs> even though I'm a motor mouth most of the time. I find that space um, one that I feel very privileged and I very much, um, I wouldn't say enjoy, but I very much feel that I am good in in that space in my short career and I've, I've done it multiple times. Yeah. We had interviewed early on in our podcast series, Felicity, who unfortunately lost her uh, daughter, Eve, at, you know, 20, 25, 28 weeks and then and went on to have another bubba. And, and actually she sent me a uh, Instagram message only a short while ago. Every year they go back to Cradle Mountain and they honour her. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it, it's nice to see, you know, happiness. Uh, and, and I think that's that's where where your skill sets and, and you know good good doctors skill sets good midwife skill sets are, are all about that supporting during the hard times and and also making sure that they're well supported in the future because you know a lot of anxiety happens particularly for a woman as she's going through pregnancy again and also at the times where losses have happened before so it can be as early as six weeks and you get anxious then it can be you know as late as thirty nine weeks and you know I've had patients who've come and seen me having lost babies later on in pregnancy and you know that once it gets late into the pregnancy they're super anxious about what's going to happen and, and that support phase is you know highly highly important having a, had your own personal experience will obviously bode very well for being able to support those people in in the future i, ho- I hope so yeah absolutely and there's that saying i know it was drilled into us in midwifery and it was you know you People forget what you say, but they never, ever forget how you make them feel. And making yes. people feel safe in times like that is just an essential part of both of our um, careers. So, yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about your new book? Because, you know, as if you don't have enough to your name, you're now a published author, which is so amazing. I've ordered your book. I'm waiting for your book. Oh, you. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, yeah, your incredible book and what it contains and how on earth you found the time to write a book amongst your busy life? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think Joe and I we, we talked about this before we started the podcast. But if you give a job to a busy person and it gets done, and but in all truth, I found I wanted to write that book because it hit so close to home for me. You know, I've had an amazing career. My resume speaks for itself. I'm, I'm aware of that. But there was so much insecurity as a young person. So many times where I thought I didn't fit in or I wasn't enough. Um, and I think sometimes some of the early success that I actually chased, both in sport and academics, was to make myself feel better about who I was and to find who I was as a person. And so it wasn't until much later in life that I started looking in the mirror and thinking, you know, I don't mind the person staring back at me anymore and that I'm enough just the way that I am. So I would have loved someone to have handed me a book, you know, 15 years ago and said, hey, mate, you're, you're okay. You know, you're going you're gonna to do fine, contribute stuff to the world and, and be authentic and honest and own who you are and, and that's enough, you know. And so the book is full of uh, anecdotes and quotes around finding who you are as a person, loving the skin that you're in, looking at your weaknesses and realising that actually they're probably some of your strengths. And I guess the best example I can use is my previous pet name as a young athlete was Drama Yana. And for so many years I tried to 
recreate who that person was and and remove the drama and remove the passion and and be the cookie cutter style athlete but but I actually realized that that dramatism is or the dramatic nature that I had was passion it was love it was enthusiasm for life it was disappointment when things didn't go well um, and it's what actually made me who I was it was it was that passion and desire that made me successful but the emotional side of that was also why I got over heartache so quickly because I don't know about you guys but I grew up in a family where my dad would you know give me a cup of concrete and say suck it up princess you got to toughen up and and get on with it um, and I just cried so it's such a different different outlook but let it out. Like I let out the pain, you know, I lost the Olympics. I lost babies. You know, I got scared of my relationships. I've been divorced. All those things hurt everybody. It, you know, we're human. Those things touch, they touch a raw nerve, but I was always someone who ate a big block of chocolate and cried my eyes out about it. And then suddenly I started feeling better. And I think there's a lot to be said about dealing with pain and emotion when it happens and, and let it, don't let it sink in and take its roots so deep in your soul that it can't get out. And then you get, you'd carry it around like a ball and chain and then it becomes the reason you don't say yes to opportunities. It needs to actually be the opposite. You need to stick, pick up that heartache and pick up, pick up that failure and put it in front of you and examine it and then get angry about it and get disappointed and look at it and go, you know what, that's the reason I'm going to go and say yes to a new opportunity or, you know, take a, take on a, a new challenge that you would probably never think you would have otherwise. And, um, I never won the Olympics, actually, Eliza. You introduced me at the beginning, but it was actually the reason I did medicine. Um, it was not winning the Olympic Games that gave me the courage to finally sit that medical, medical entrance exam for the, for the second time and to pursue that goal because I sat there and thought, well, I can wallow in my disappointment and I've been multiple world champion, multiple Commonwealth champion, world record holder, but I didn't win the one thing I wanted most, which was the Olympic Games. Um and I could have held on to that and carried that forever. But instead I sat there and went, no, I want to be a doctor. I've always wanted to be a doctor. I'm a single parent. I'm living with my family. I've got absolutely no money. This is the worst time. And you're 30 to go to medical school. But I had that fire in my belly to do something different. So I thought, why not? What have you got to lose? You've proved through through sport that you've, you're resilient. Um, and so you give it a crack. And so I look back on it now. Don't get me wrong. I would have loved to have won the Olympics and had the shiny medal and, 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 and had that accolade. But I think now, how have I not... Had I won the Olympic gold medal, I probably would never have become a doctor. Had I not become a doctor, I would have never birthed the beautiful babies I've now been involved in, never done the uterine transplant space, never have the incredible career that I'm hoping to be fully, you know, fully immersed in for the next 20 or 30 years. So I guess that's the book summarises that everything happens for a reason. As long as you've got heart, you've got grit and you want something enough, then you just chase it until it expires. And then if it expires, there's going to be another door open. You've just got to be ready to, to accept that new challenge. Well, I can't wait to read this book. I tell you what, <laughs> how absolutely phenomenal. When you talk about, you know, getting over stuff, generally speaking, every morning you wake up, what's your perception of the world and the world that you live in, in terms of how do you feel and how do you feel? I ask this question <laughs> because we, we, we had a child psychologist the other day that we interviewed and, and she was talking about resilience and the fact that we teach children about resilience, but that's actually teaching them that the world is inherently bad and they need to face that world mm -hmm. because it's bad with this all element of resilience. And her, her perception was that well, that's wrong. What we should be doing is actually teaching our children that the world's great. It's awesome. Yes. Yes. And yet there is these little things that are bad and we've got to teach you how to obviously manage those and maybe that's the suck up the concrete bit that your dad yep. did, but rather think about the world as really awesome. And when I asked my son the question and he's 13 and he'd gone through this resilience pattern in his life, I asked him, 
what do you think about the world? Is it is it a good place inherently? Like, do you think it's good? He's 13. He's very in tune with his emotions. And he said, no, the world's not a good place. And I thought, how sad to be 13. And, I mean, obviously, his family life's great. You know, he lives in a nice house. He goes to a good school. But inherently, he thinks the world is a bad place. And that's, I feel so sad. So now, as part of that podcast, I've started changing and, and saying to him, you know, look at all the greatness that's around. Let's not focus on what's happening in the Ukraine and, and all the bad stuff that we see that sort of gets bombarded. But, you know, whenever someone says to me, you know, how are you in the morning? I go awesome or, you know, never yeah. better or lo- loving life, right? So my, my, I have this sunny disposition. The world's absolutely awesome. And if something comes my way and sort of rocks my boat, I sort of weather it and then just move on. What's your perception of the world? I am exactly the same as you, Joe. I'm very much a sunny disposition person, but I'm also someone who believes in a good cry and a good break. So, you know, I, I get shocked by the world occasionally because I'm not, I, I genuinely just live in that positive space. But so when things don't go to plan or heartache happens, I, it, it shocks me. It knocks me off my perch for a little while. But I, I'm very lucky that I get back on it very quickly because I just see the optimism that's there. I see the opportunity that's there. Um, I'm, I've got a lot of self-talk. So I'm someone who has a lot of inner dialogue um, and a lot of good discussion, which has evolved over the years. It could be quite negative in the past, whereas I feel like now it serves me a purpose. But it's been I've had to retrain that space and really retrain the way my mind communicates with the world itself because there's a lot of potential there to go down dark alleyways. And I think it's important, as you say, with your little guy that you're you try and refocus that and re, we, you can focus on the negative, but what purpose does that serve? It's not going to help anybody. So I'm very much about the whole rubber band theory, you know, when you snap the band and remove the negative thoughts. Um, I used to use that as a, I know it sounds very quirky and old school, but I used to use that as an, as an athlete. I had, had a rubber band. A guy called Jamie down in Melbourne taught me this and you put the band on and you just snap it when you thought your mind's racing in the wrong direction or you're getting very negative about something and then just replace it with a positive. And if you do it often enough, it works. It's interesting. I, I had the same thing. I used to put a rubber band, but that was because I used to say dude all the time. <laughs> <laughs> got to beat that out of yourself. Hey, dude. Oh, damn it, I've said it again. Bang. I tried to get it, get myself to not say it. So That silly work. little technique works for far more than just getting rid of a word that you don't like to say. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Negative thoughts. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, but it's funny you say that because my daughters, I actually I tell my daughters they're beautiful every day, and I ask my kids, "Hey, sweetie, are you beautiful?" And my eight year old and my six year old very confidently say, "Yes, mum, I am beautiful." And it's such an interesting thing because I grew up with such body dysmorphia and ideas that I wasn't attractive enough, Um, and I really wanted my girls to not have that space and to grow up thinking that the body they're in is just perfect the way it is. And so we, I actively use little very similar to what that I'm assuming that psychologist would, would say as well. I use examples around the world to, to try and get them to have a positive mindset because I'm hoping that, that that gives them a platform. The world's going to be hard on them. We know that. And unfortunately, the the countries where, you know, I've, I've recently met Andrew Browning. I don't know if you know him. He's the doctor in, in Africa doing the fistula surgery after Catherine Hamlin. Um, oh, wow. yeah. Actually, he'd be a great podcast. Can I please recommend him for your podcast? He's amazing and his stories are brilliant and they're so interesting. He's just written a book as yeah. well. He's he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met and I only had coffee with him two weeks ago and I'm still in, enamoured by the conversation. But he's seen real, really dark stuff in the world, right? And he's, and we were talking about the fact that we live in such a wealthy, beautiful country but yet our problems are real because we haven't faced anything different. So we can't expect our kids to be resilient when they haven't faced stuff 
like the Ukraine. So, yes, that stuff is devastating and it's hard and maybe they think the world is ugly because of stuff they watch on television, but ultimately it's them feeling their way through that space and I guess introducing them to them and letting them see it but then reflecting on the fact that they have a good life is the best the best option we have. You know, I, I like mm. a well-rounded, worldly child, so I think that you need to be hats off to your little man that he can recognise that space. Yeah, we can make him a bit more positive. You can give him an elastic band, that'll work. But, you know, it's great that he acknowledges that the world is going to be tough. You just need to make sure that he realises he's going to be a standout light in that world. That's so beautiful. And Stuart, my fiancé, and I have this discussion all the time. We have a little a little girl who's 11 months old and he's from South Africa. He's lived all over Africa growing up and he came here and his biggest – he's only been here for a year. We've only been living in Australia for a year. But he his biggest thought process was like my child's not going to be well-rounded because Australia's living in Australia is too easy. And he just keeps saying he's had this perpetual thing. We've been together for almost eight years now. He just says the same thing. And for him, it's like a genuine fear because he's seen poverty. He's seen, you know, some terrible things as you do when you when you live in third world countries, you know, and whilst he had a beautiful and privileged life over there, he's very much aware of what what goes on? And so he he is like both of you, and I would love to get to that mindset. I'm not going to say that I'm there yet, but he is always happy. He is never stressed about anything, and he always says it's because I know what happens in the world, and and we're so we're so blessed every single day. We're so lucky. So yeah, it's a it's, it's an amazing mindset that you both have there. So I'm I'm working on it. I hope to say this in a podcast in a few years time. <laughs> <laughs> But it is a work in progress, isn't it? Because I definitely wasn't here five years ago and I also slip off occasionally. It's not always like that. I just know that when my when, when I'm starting to get a bit dark and negative, it usually means I need to sit down and address something. There's something underlying that is not being resolved and often I have to sit down. It's often I'm nervous. It's often I feel guilty about something that I haven't put enough time into. You know, the mother guilt's always raging, I can tell you that. Um, but, you know, normally if you just sit with yourself, your your mind will find it. what it is it has to kind of delve through and then you can get back to that positive disposition again. Let's touch a little bit on that, that mother guilt stuff. I mean, you know, I find it difficult. I've got a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old and a 4-year-old um, and, you know, you, you've chosen a career where yeah, you're going to have some late nights, you're going to have some early mornings. Um, how do you balance what's, what's happening with your children and, and obviously the demands that a junior doctor has, the long hours, the night duty um, and, and being away from family? How do you balance all of that? Um, I think you need to own it to start off with. Um, I'm not the only one that has parental guilt, and I know it's not mother guilt, it's parental guilt because two things. I know that I'm not, my my beautiful sister-in-law is a stay-at-home mum and she's extraordinary at it and she loves it and I would die. It's not something that would work for my lifestyle. I wouldn't be a good parent. I'd be annoyed and yelling and uncomfortable and jittery. And so therefore I know that that's not my space and I have to own that. And it's okay to own that space. I work too much. I'm well aware of that. Um, It's actually not my medical career that I work too much in. It's my extracurricular activities. My PhD is taking huge amounts of time, my obstetric, my um, uterine transplant project. Um, The public speaking I do in the media I do is, is time consuming. So it's finding quality time, not quantity time. And a couple of things is I need to outsource. So I own the fact that I have a wonderful nanny. She's phenomenal. And that is taboo to talk about in a in a female environment. We're all pri- pretending that we can do it all by ourselves. We don't need any help. That's a load of crap. We need to be a village. We need to be able to own that we need space. We need help. We need time. We need friends. We need 
a, a village. We need people around us to pick us up when things aren't going to plan. Um, and the best part about it, Joe, is that when, when I'm at work, I get to do what I love. And when I come home, the food's all cooked and the house is clean and I get to sit down with my kids and actually read them a book and be present and enjoy that, that lifestyle with them. But I've also, let's be honest, I'm 40. I finished medical school four years ago and I'm only just now applying for the obstetric program because I did part-time training for a little while. So I own the fact that I needed to to prioritise my family and there'll be ebbs and flows in my career. And um, I know that the Ranscock College won't want to hear this, but you know, there's probably going to be a year during my training where I'm going to have to go part-time to enable me to finish my PhD and to be a role model for women and um, and to keep going with some of the advocacy programs that I'm involved in, very similar to yourself. I have to own that I am more than just my medical training. I absolutely 100 wholeheartedly want to be an obstetrician, but I feel like I'm more than just that and um, and, I, and I'm hoping that that is something the college thinks is fantastic when they, when they eventually let me join. If I had any sway, of course, but <laughs> I don't. It's been a while since I've, I've been on college council. Jan, it's been wonderful chatting to you and thank you so Phenomenal. much for, for sharing uh, your journey, not only through athletics but also through pregnancy loss, uh, cervical cancer scare and uh, and good luck in your endeavours to get on the program. I'm sure you will and I look forward to one day seeing you as a fellow of the college and perhaps working with you in the in the not-too-distant future. Come to Melbourne. Melbourne's awesome. <laughs> I don't need to transfer a few people down here but, uh, you know, it's quite good. Thanks, guys. No, I really appreciate it. You guys are doing a great work, so well done. Thanks, Yana. Thank you for listening to another episode of Baby Baking and Kid Raising. If you'd like to suggest a guest or connect and see more of us, then head to Instagram at Baby Baking and Kid Raising. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you could hit subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever listening platform you use. Please note that the information provided in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider regarding your own pregnancy, birth and health conditions.